This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we welcome Daniel Denver, who is the author of All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, new from Verso Press. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, So if you would, before we start talking about the book, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to this particular project. Uh, Currently, My day job is hosting Jacobin's podcast, The Dig, which will probably be of interest to a lot of New Books Network's listeners because I read a lot of books and talk to their authors. (laughs) Um, And uh, But I've been spending the last three years writing this book on immigration politics and how they led to the situation that Donald Trump could become president after running the most brazenly racist anti-immigrant campaign, perhaps in American history, uh, at least in recent American history. And how I got to that is, well, I'll tell the short version of a long story, been involved in various types of, you know, left social justice political struggles since I was a, a, a teenager. And after college, I did a lot of immigrant rights organizing around 2005, 2006, when the sort of immigrant rights movement that we know today really exploded out into the streets throughout 2006 in response to this anti-immigrant bill that passed the House, the Sensenbrenner bill that some listeners might remember. And uh, and then I moved into to journalism, always uh, pretty openly sharing my political perspective, but more of a journalist than an activist. And even though I was covering all sorts of different things, criminal justice, education, I did uh, for most of my career, I was a, uh, up to a few years ago, I was a reporter at the Philadelphia City Paper, which like many alt weeklies is now deceased. And I consistently just returned to immigration because it was an issue that I thought was a critical one in terms of asking the question of, of, of who the American people are being a central battle in defining where the American people are going and the right always trying to, to, to create sharp, uh, sharp divisions and, and, and narrow limits because that's typically, uh, in their interest. So that, um, in the lead up to the 2016 election, I pitched this book thinking that, that Hillary Clinton, who I was, uh, to put it mildly, not particularly enthused about it. I still thought she was going to going to win, and I had to rewrite my pitch the day after the election um, <laughs> to take account of the fact that Donald Trump had won the presidency. So, what do we, so why don't we start there? I mean, what a, 
as I've tried to, to, to find ways to think for myself about Trump and the Trump administration and to try to make sense of it as a political scientist, I mean, one of the questions that I've, I've repeatedly asked myself uh, is, is Trump a difference in degree or is he a difference in kind, right? So once we get beyond sort of the obvious rhetorical and the stylistic markers, are Trump era policies actually all that radical? So as you think about the history of, of immigration policy in the United States and where we are today, what's your answer to that question? Right. I, that's an, that was one of the central questions I was trying to answer my book. And it's one that there's no central answer to because uh, the, 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 on the one hand, the title of my book could be rephrased, uh, Trump subtitle, Obama, Bush and Clinton did it. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't want to underplay the significant ways that Trump has uh, heightened the war on immigrants and broken with American politics as we did know them. For example, his policy requiring Central American asylum seekers to to wait in Mexico, uh, where they're subject to to the very sorts of violence that they're fleeing in Central America. That's a new sort of cruelty. His attempt to strip DACA recipients of their legal protections that immigrant rights activists had won from Obama during the Obama administration. That is a a, a radicalization. The way that he talks about immigrants without any sort of compunction as uh, rapists and and, and criminals is is indeed a departure from the past. But I also believe and try to explain in the book that it's deeply rooted in normal American politics as we have known him. We've seen decades of politicians, uh, specifically from from Bill Clinton through Bush and Obama, describing immigrants as as a criminal, social, economic, and then terrorist threat, and that provided the language that Trump has used in many ways, and also built the insti- very much built the institutions and laws that Trump has been wielding against immigrants. So he is in some ways a departure, but one who is very rooted in in ordinary politics as we've known them. And I I think it's fair to say that that you would argue that without Clinton, Bush, and Obama, then the current current more aggressive approach wouldn't be possible, right? Yeah. I mean, the the anti-immigrant movement that I analyze has sort of two facets. It has the the, the non-governmental movement facet, which was founded in a sense in 1979 by this Michigan ophthalmologist named John Tanton, who, I mean, really quite spectacularly founded this massive array of anti-immigrant organizations that today comprise pretty much every major anti-immigrant organization in the country, the Federation for the American Immig- the Federation for American Immigration Reform, the Center for Immigration Studies, U.S. English, Numbers USA. And they, along with all sorts of other right-wing anti-immigrant activists, have been at the forefront of pushing the anti-immigrant agenda. But time and again, the way that establishment politicians from both major parties have responded is by doubling down their own war on immigrants. But when that immigrant, when that war on immigrants hasn't proven successful, um, there hasn't been a re-examination of the fundamental premise of the war. Instead, every time the the, the Overton window, to use an over, overused term, but I think uh, that works well enough, has been moved consistently in a more anti-immigrant and more right-wing direction so that the the only crackdown really left was the most maximalist one expressed in the most maximalist unabashed terminology that 
that Trump uses. I mean, before the 1990s, the border, people don't remember that the border was relatively easy to cross. There were only a few thousand border patrol agents, which around by uh, the end of the the last decade, I believe, had risen to about 20,000. We went from almost no fencing along the border to, after 2006, hundreds of miles of fencing, over 600 miles of fencing because of the Secure Fence Act, which was signed by George W. Bush and supported in the Senate by uh, people we think of as immigration moderates or even pro-immigrant politicians who, I argue, are nothing of the sort, like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden. We look to uh, Donald Trump's family separation uh, policy, possibly the most, you know, barbaric thing that he's done on immigration that has received the most public condemnation. Well, that was based on on a law criminalizing unauthorized entry into the country that was little enforced until the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administration. And Obama didn't separate families the way that Trump has. He attempted to incarcerate asylum-seeking families from Central America together, and a judge made him stop. And he incarcerated them in atrocious conditions. And so Trump's family separation policy was a way to get around that. So in every case, really, both in terms of the politics and the policies and the legal institutional measures being used, these were all crafted by Trump's predecessors. Let's let's go back to to Clinton and and talk a little bit about about the, the politics piece of this. Um, can you can you offer maybe a quick overview of of Clinton era immigration policies and what what he thought that was going to get him? Yeah, well, I guess a good place to begin is that in the early 1990s, mass anti-immigrant politics that we've come to know today emerge in California. There's a recession taking hold as the aerospace industry takes a dive with the end of the Cold War. And there have been decades of Mexican immigration, pre-existing Mexican immigration that dates back decades and decades and decades, being suddenly criminalized in the 1960s and 70s. And this really crystallizes around a ballot measure called Proposition 187 that would, amongst other things, uh, make it uh, illegal to provide any sort of social services, including public education, to immigrants and the governor, the incumbent California governor at the time is running for re-election in 1994, Pete Wilson, and he hitches his own re-election to Proposition 187 and rides it to victory. And the way the Clinton administration responds to this is the way it responded to a lot of right-wing politics on the era, including welfare politics and, and the politics of criminal justice, which is to triangulate, to take a, watered, a somewhat watered-down version of the right-wing proposal and make it his own. And in doing so, attempt to undermine the the right wing agenda, the, the the force of the right wing politics. And in a sense, that 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 at least didn't work against him in the 1990s because he won re-election, obviously. Um, though it did, um, as as I mentioned earlier, really move the debate in increasingly right wing directions, which was ultimately detrimental not only to immigrants but obviously now looking at Donald Trump in the White House to American politics as a whole. But to look concretely at the things Clinton did. Uh, we saw uh, a, a massive campaign to militarize the border, beginning with Operation Hold the Line in El Paso, which basically flooded the the 
common, the most popular illegal crossing points uh, between Ciudad Juarez, Mexico and El Paso with border patrol agents. Uh, and it seemed to have achieved the impossible, shutting down unauthorized entry. Uh, what it ultimately did was just push unauthorized entries into other parts of the border where people had to cross in much more dangerous conditions, for example, in the Arizona desert, <clears throat> where many, many, many died. Uh, but it seemed like a huge and was celebrated as a huge success at the time. So ahead, right ahead of the Prop 187 vote in 1994, uh, Attorney General Janet Reno rolls out Operation Gatekeeper, a replica of Operation Hold the Line, in the busiest unauthorized border crossing area in the country, the San Diego Tijuana, the San, uh, border crossing area, and does the same thing. At the same time, you have uh, Dianne Feinstein, who's, who's a senator who had just lost the gubernatorial race to Pete Wilson a few years prior, uh, also campaigning against illegal immigrants. So it's at that time that you really see a bipartisan consensus, with some notable exceptions, emerging that immigration is a problem and that some version of a crackdown is the solution. We see Clinton sign laws like uh, a law called IRA-IRA in 1976, which helps fix the, the, the country's burgeoning criminal justice mass incarceration system into the helps tie it to the deportation system uh, so that an increasing number of crimes are uh, are, are deportable offenses. Um, and we see the the militarization of the border growing with a growing number with, with a huge expansion of of the number of border patrol agents. So you both have an increase in deportations, a framing of immigrants as a criminal and a framing of immigrants as a criminal, threat. And, uh, and, and and that's really what defines immigration politics in the 1990s. And a lot of this, and there's a remarkable memo from, from Rahm Emanuel that I can actually uh, read from right now. Um, a lot of, a, a lot of, this is this time in the 1990s at the end of the Cold War where the U.S. has lost its, its sense of of purpose in the world because it's lost its enemy in the Soviet Union at the very same time that capital is seeming increasingly mobile. There's, there's, there's diffuse opposition and anxiety around globalization ahead of the 1994 implementation of NAFTA and displacing those concerns, these political and economic and social concerns onto the border and onto immigrants, this displacement of the, of this anxiety the social, political, economic anxiety around around the free movement of capital onto the free movement of people is is politically effective uh, as far as the Clinton administration sees it. And and Rahm Emanuel, who's a senior advisor to Clinton at the time, has this remarkable 1996 memo to Clinton that says, "quote We should be honest that if we want continued public support for trade and friendly relations with Mexico, we must be vigilant in our effort to curb illegal trade, e.g." narcotics and immigrants. And it's, it, I mean, there are, I guess, any number of questions that, that, that sort of, of uh, arise from that. Uh, I guess one is, is that, you know, we know that, that, that in the Obama administration there, they were, were, I think, reasonably ex- explicit about the expectation that, uh, 
either creating tough policies or being seen as creating tough policies could bolster opportunities for comprehensive immigration reform. So I guess one of the questions there is, is, is what's your read on how much of this was just sort of raw, crude electoral strategy on behalf of the Clinton administration, but how much of it was their inevitably mistaken belief that this could create space for better policies. And uh, the the other question that comes along with that is, is, is or maybe it's a separate question, is is what is the role that race is playing here, right? Because we're not talking about any immigrants in, in each of these cases. We, we, we are, by and large, talking about black and brown-skinned immigrants. Yeah, well, let me take those two one at a time, and let me start with with, with race, and then I'll I'll move to move to reform. Um, so the question of race is really important because Mexican immigrants start getting recruited um, through the Bracero program for decades in the early and mid twentieth century to meet the demands for agricultural labor, in particular in the Southwest. There's a lack of labor at the time from from Asia and from Southern and Eastern Europe because in the nineteen 19- beginning in the 1880s with with the 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then following through later decades with a number of other laws, Asian workers are basically banned from the country. And then beginning in the 1920s, uh, disfavored for racist reasons, Southern and Eastern Europeans are heavily restricted. And so the U.S. government and U.S. business invites huge numbers of Mexican laborers into the country to fill that labor shortage. And that labor migration system is in place in the 1960s, in ni- when in 1965, these explicitly racist immigration restrictions are abolished. But at the same time, for the first time ever, there are country specific, there are the Bracero program, the guest worker program comes to the end, comes to an end. And then in 1976, the first ever country specific caps are applied to Western Hemisphere countries, very much including Mexico. So there's a pre-existing system of of mass Mexican labor migration into the U.S. that's been going on for decades, and suddenly it's criminalized. So it's that policy by the U.S. government that creates the figure of the illegal immigrant and makes the illegal immigrant Mexican and makes Mexicans into illegal immigrants. So there's this race-blind, liberal kind of universalist policy put in place that has, as its unstated subtext, the racist criminalization of of particularly Mexican immigration. So Mexicans are stigmatized not, uh, not in name by law, but effectively by law. Uh, and, 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 and that is really key to understanding the racist policy, the, the racist aspect of this policy and how and, 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 and the way that racism was incubated by a purportedly race-neutral liberal universalism. And we can talk about that more if you'd like. But on the reform question, reform was not really on the table during the Clinton administration. Ronald Reagan had signed a major reform called the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, in 1986 that both provided legal status to to millions of undocumented immigrants, mostly Mexicans, and also had an enforcement mechanism, employer sanctions. But those employer sanctions really didn't have teeth as anti-immigrant activists uh, and researchers will be quick to tell you. Um, And so uh, that was the big 
immigration reform of the 1980s that wasn't on the table in, in the 1990s. It got on the table during the Bush administration. And it was Bush who tried, started trying to push this idea of comprehensive immigration reform, which include a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, more enforcement at the border and the interior, and guest worker programs, which create, uh, you know, workers who are just here as workers but have no rights as citizens and thus have been heavily criticized, I think quite justly, by, by labor advocates and many immigrant rights advocates. And so the law itself, the, these, propo- these proposed laws themselves, this, this comprehensive immigration reform legislation, was attempting to offer something for everyone. But the Republican Party was becoming a very different sort of party. And they didn't care about more enforcement because they were staunchly opposed to anything that would equate to, that would amount to so-called amnesty for what they considered inherently criminal immigrants. And, you know, again, I should emphasize that this idea that, that, that undocumented immigrants are inherently criminal, um, did, you know, did not, is, is not just a creature of the right. Bill Clinton in his weekly radio address in May, 1995 said, our nation was built by immigrants, but we won't tolerate immigration by people whose first act is to break the law as they enter our country. So the right is staunchly opposed to this. In fact, they're proposing pure enforcement bills like the Sensenbrenner bill, in, which passes the House in December 2005 and sparks these massive immigrant rights protests in 2006. It, this is a law that would criminalize mere undocumented presence in the country, which is currently just a civil offense, and uh, also potentially criminalize providing any sort of aid to undocumented immigrants. It's an extremely radical anti-immigrant bill, but it also perfectly expresses where the Republican Party is at at the moment. Yet the Bush administration and establishment immigrant rights groups in D.C. think that adding enough you know, additional border enforcement and border militarization to these comprehensive immigration reform bills will win over the right, uh, the, the right wing to comprehensive immigration reform. I think quite predictably, and I realize that I, uh, you know, can say this with certainty, given that it's uh, that it's history, and, I, and and we know that it's true. <laughs> um, but, um, but I actually was involved in this stuff at the time, and and and, and I think predictably it, it failed because the right was purely interested in anti-immigrant politics, and not. Uh, and they also reasonably believed that they could get more and more and more enforcement, more and more and more deportations, more and more and more border patrol agents, more border fencing without offering anything in return, because that's consistently what happened. So comprehensive immigration reform is failing. What does George W. Bush sign? The Secure Fence Act, which builds over 600 miles of fencing, which in many places looks precisely like what Trump might call a wall. He, 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 He signs that into law and its legislation, again, passed with support from both Republicans and many centrist. Obama, Clinton, Biden. Exactly. Exactly. So (laughs) so the right so the right very reasonably believes that they can get everything they want without giving anything in return in return. But Bush and then Obama thinks that if they just deport enough people, if they just show that they're tough enough on on criminal aliens, on securing the border, that finally they'll have credibility with the right and the right will be reasonable and come to the table and pass comprehensive immigration reform. That's not what happens. In fact, precisely the opposite happens. And the right's demands just become more and more and more extreme 
until the rights demands become embodied in the extreme cartoon character, racist president that we that we have at present. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. But I mean, it, it's in this, we could lodge this complaint against Obama in any number of area, areas, as well as, as his vice president, Biden. Uh, it took a very long time for the Obama administration to realize that there was no chance that this strategy was going to work. Or, or did they ever realize it in your in your estimation? You know, it, it, they only they they only, it only began to dawn on them. I think that that it wouldn't work. Not so much because of the rights refusal to to play ball, which should have been ind- indication uh, enough for them. I mean, Obama. Uh, this is in uh, in two thousand seven in in El Paso in an, a speech in El Paso. He says, we have gone above and beyond what was requested by the very Republicans who said they supported broader reform as long as we got serious about enforcement. All the stuff they've asked for, we've done. And even though we've answered these concerns, I've got to say, I suspect there are still going to be some who are trying to move the goalposts on us one more time. They said we needed to triple the border patrol, or now they're going to say we need to quadruple the border patrol, or they'll want a higher fence. Maybe they'll need a moat. Maybe they want alligators in the moat. They'll never be satisfied. But, but what he didn't seem to realize is that, is, that, is that precisely this analysis that he was making, which was entirely correct, it, that it was an indictment of his own politics. And yet he continued. He only shifted gears, not because of the rights obstructionism, which he did not. He, he either refused or was incapable of, of, of interpreting correctly, but because the increasing extremism both of right-wing Republicans and of Obama, who was starting to set deportation records. And I want to emphasize, Obama did set deportation records. There's been a lot of debate and uh, obfuscation around that. It, it, it prompted- The deporter a, in chief, he yes, was referred to by yes. lots of immigration advocates. Yes. And it was a just descriptor. Uh, it, it, that excited a mass militant movement of immigrant rights activists who represented communities that are a key part of the Democratic Party base. This movement was led by young dreamers, uh, people who were brought to this country as, as young people without authorization, and so grew up basically as Americans, but with but with no legal status here, and were subject to deportation and all sorts of marginalization while just trying to live their live their lives. These are like the paradigmatically sympathetic uh, uh, immigrants who. But even so, Republicans would not pass the Dream Act, which would have given legal status. Finally, I mean, they are—they are—they have this this movement that's consistently targeting Obama and says, "Listen, we're we're like, yeah, the Republicans are evil, but you, President Obama, who's supposed to be your ally, you're the one deporting my family members, so we're holding you responsible." And finally, and sanctuary cities were were started as a reaction to Obama policies, correct? Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, think uh, people erase from their memories. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get to that in one second. But just, but Obama Obama passes DACA uh, implements DACA as a response to the immigrant 
rights movement. It's the immigrant right. It's the it, it, and it's not the DC establishment groups. They keep trying. They they're really trying to work with Obama to the last minute. It's it's local groups and it's the more militant dreamers who who shift their targets from the Republicans to Obama and secure DACA. But yes, there's there's a there's a perverse totally perverse history around sanctuary cities. As you just said, it's Obama's mass deportation program that causes groups like the National Day Labor Organizing Network, which is an amazing group representing the most marginalized immigrant workers in this country, day laborers who punches way above their weight, doesn't have anything like the funding of these big DC establishment groups that were so close to Obama. Um, and uh, and and they and they and other people on the Im- groups on the immigrant rights left organize to resist Obama's deportation programs, which is around the, this policy in particular called this program in particular called Secure Communities, which basically links every local police station and jail to ICE, so that when someone's booked in uh, and fingerprinted in a local police station, it's immediately checked against ICE records, and ICE can pick up. That person, and that's in accord with Obama's idea, you know that like uh, you know that he's targeting felons, not families. Well, like maybe hypothetically, that makes some sort of sense. But we live in a country with with, with mass incarceration that incarcerates just absurdly huge numbers of people. So guess what? A lot of people who are getting uh, booked into local jails are not necessarily Satan, and so this is really turbocharges Obama's whole immigration campaign, and the immigrant rights movement mobilizes to push localities to resist participation in Obama's program. That's where these sanctuary cities, which in turn are hearkening back to the sanctuary policies from and, and movement from the 1980s that resisted Reagan's attempt to deport Sal- Salvadorans fleeing his dirty war violence in Central America. The, these are the sanctuary cities policies. And then this really twisted thing happens where there's uh, a woman in San Francisco killed in, uh, I believe it's 2000, in 2015, um, named Kate Steinle, um, by, uh, a, it's a very bizarre story, an undocumented immigrant who evinces a sign of major mental health problems. And he actually is ultimately acquitted of the murder because it does seem like he shot her accidentally, but it becomes this cause celeb on the right and Trump latches onto it. And Trump basically is like, you know, these are Obama's sanctuary policies that protected this person and, and made sure that he was on the street to kill our, you know, this this beautiful, he's always emphasizing that she's beautiful, beautiful young woman, Kate Steinle. And so Obama is pushed to scale back things like secure communities and 287G, which is another thing that an, an, another uh, so-called crim immigration program that basically deputizes local law enforcement that was signed, that was made possible by Bill Clinton, but then uh, really turbocharged under George W. Bush um, and and gave uh, immigration enforcement powers to to law enforcement figures like Joe Arpaio. Um, Obama scales these back. Not, it's really no credit to him. It's a credit to the movements that made him do it. And then Trump says, look at Obama's horrible sanctuary policies, 287G and secure communities are great programs. They work. We're going to bring them back. So in our, our last few minutes here, Daniel, we are speaking with uh, Daniel Denver is the author of all American nativism, uh, an extraordinary and unfortunately, uh, 
I was going to say timeless, but it's perennially timeless, isn't it? Um, at least <laughs> uh, how the bipartisan war on immigrants explained politics as we know it. Um, is is your, I mean, it, it seems to me reasonable to suggest that Obama was not a white supremacist and equally reasonable to suggest that Trump is a white supremacist. Um, so can you, can you just sort of think out loud about, about that sort of question, sort of how, how, what's, 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 I don't even know how to ask the question, right? So what do you make of that? Yeah. I mean, I think what it does is help us understand how, how, how racism works in American society in ways that are deeply systematic and institutional. There's often in many kind of liberal establishment circles, an attempt to define racism as bad thoughts in individual people's heads. And Trump is an individual person with lots of bad thoughts in his head, obviously. And those thoughts now that he's president certainly have consequence, serious consequence. I don't want to minimize that. But it was not Trump who built the systems, built this country's system of mass incarceration or mass deportation or built hundreds of miles of fencing on the U.S. border, within a liberal institutional framework that professes universal inclusion, the United States has managed to build lots of racist systems. And what I'm trying to do in the book is explain how these racist systems are not only inherently racist in themselves, how they not only serve, uh, functionally serve to, to maintain the, the neoliberal political economic status quo in themselves, but also help incubate brazen mask off far right racism that we now see openly flourishing. I mean, a great example of this, I think, is, is the war on terror, which I talk a lot about in my mm-hmm. book and how Trump's, Trump's openly racist nationalist, white nationalist fortress America is really incubated, we really see it in embryonic form in George Bush's figuration of the United States during the war on terror, early war on terror, as a homeland. The neoconservatives have uh, like a, a, a sort of liberal universalist zealous utopianism that's driving them. They, they argue that the war on terror is not against Muslims. It is to liberate and bring democracy to Muslims anywhere, everywhere. And I, and I, I think maybe the most shocking thing I discovered of everything I discovered researching this book is that Republican favorable attitudes towards Muslims skyrockets after September 11th. This, this universalist claim underpinning the early war on terror holds. But the premise of the whole thing is that we have to fight, as Bush put it, the wars over there so we don't have to fight the terrorists over here. And so by the mid-2000s, when it's becoming clear that the war on terror, the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, everywhere is a disaster and public support for those wars plummets, but there's no strong anti-war movement that collapsed pretty quickly. The, when, when, so as a result, when many people sour on the war on terror, they also become increasingly negative towards Muslims and the war uh, and anti-immigrant politics increasingly become Islamophobic. So the war on terror was obviously structurally Islamophobic from the get-go and maintained anti-Muslim principles at its core. 
And so when the universalist pretense of it fell apart, that raw, unabashedly racist principle burst forth and became an end into itself. Because that's all that remained. That was all that was left of it. Right. Um, so as, as, as we work our way toward concluding, there, there is um, an upside arguably, uh, to sort of this, this, this moment we inhabit of, of hyper-polarization uh, that maybe will, will break this bipartisan uh, belief that anti-immigrant policies are beneficial. Can you, can you finish up by talking a little bit about, about sort of, of, of the, the opportunities you see now in perhaps the Democratic Party uh, breaking loose? And if you've got any thoughts on sort of the Democratic primary and how immigration may or may not play out among, among any of the, the contenders there. Yeah. I mean, amazingly enough, the conclusion of my book is rather optimistic. It and really that... is. It's shocking <laughs> when you get there. <laughs> I, I was shocked myself, but I was looking at this polling data and you wouldn't know it, but the American people perhaps currently hold the most pro-immigrant positions in the history of this country, even as the right is increasingly maximally radical in their anti-immigrant politics. How did that happen? Well, I mean, so how did that happen? What does that mean? We really start to see these uh, public opinion change. I think this all starts in, in, in 2006 with the eruption of the immigrant rights movement in response to the Sensenbrenner bill passed in December 2005 by the House, which really just goes to far and it starts to break the bipartisan consensus on the ground that underpins the entire war on immigrants. We see the same thing intensifying under Obama as increasingly deportation, his mass deportation policies are seen as reactionary racist policies. And so increasingly people on the on the, from from the center left to the left are identifying more and more strongly with the immigrant rights movement. And with Trump He's now touch. He's now tarred this entire edifice of, of of anti-immigrant politics and institutional repression with his own toxic brand, further intensifying the polarization around the issue. And I know in your discipline of political science, there are you know schools of people who think that that polarization is uh you know <laughs> is, is like the worst thing that could have ever happened to American politics. But in fact, it's the the the, uh, the bipartisan consensus around so many of these issues that have led to so many disastrous policies, both on mass incarceration, we could say the same uh, with with the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq and other wars, and the same very much holds true for the war on immigrants. And so now there's true polarization, which is great because it recognizes that the radical anti-immigrant right cannot be won over to anything uh, they have to be defeated. And I'm not saying that's easy, but it is pragmatically the only solution. And I think that the, the clarification of that is something that we've, that we've really seen in the Democratic primary, where Democrats are, are rushing to embrace policies that are night and day with not only what, what Bill Clinton was doing and saying in the 1990s, but uh, you know what? What Hillary? What Hillary Clinton was was saying in the mid two thousands, or what Obama was saying in during his time in office, and so 
I think that's, I think that's great news. And how is it playing out in the primary? Um, uh, Julian Castro, to his credit, um, really introduced the idea of, of decriminalizing unauthorized entry, which both George W. Bush and Obama used to prosecute huge numbers of, of, of undocumented immigrants for the mere act of crossing the border without authorization. He's made that, he helped make that a litmus test. And then a few months back, or maybe it was about December, I think, Bernie Sanders released what all immigrant rights activists that I know say is the most uh, radical pro-immigrant platform of, of any candidate in the race, not only in terms of its policy prescriptions, but in terms of its portrayal of immigrant workers as core to the broader American working class and understanding that uniting that that diverse working class is the key to beating a right-wing xenophobic president who, who rules through division. So I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. <laughs> we have to leave it there uh, <laughs> before we ruin it. Uh, you've been listening to the New Books Network, and we've been speaking with Daniel Denver, who is the author of a terrific new book, uh, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It, uh, from Verso Press. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.